Welcome to episode 250 of the TruthQuest podcast, the truth about the Twitter files, the third tranche. Previously in episode 228 and 234, I walked you through the findings of the first and second tranche of the Twitter files. In them, it was revealed widespread collusion between Twitter executives, Democrats, intelligence agencies, and other government and non-government institutions. The major issues revealed were censoring all things conservative, or better put, all things counter to the currently approved narrative, the censoring of Hunter Biden's laptop, the banning of Donald Trump, the censoring of true information about the COVID shots, the dangers associated with them and their ineffectiveness, how the FBI, government agencies, and leftist organizations colluded with Twitter. In fact, we found out that the FBI served as the hub or the belly button of online censorship. We learned about corruption at the highest levels of the FDA and Pfizer. We learned about the Russiagate lies, the fake tale of Russian bots. One file focused on the lies and censorship requests that came directly from Congressman Adam Schiff. We learned about lobbying of social media companies directly from the pharmaceutical industry to censor discussions about low-cost vaccines for low-income countries. And we were introduced to one of the great media frauds of all time, Hamilton 68. We will hear more about them in this episode. The first file in this tranche, authored by Matt Taibbi, is titled The Global Engagement Center and State-Sponsored Blacklists. It documents a slew of government-sanctioned and or funded organizations submitting their will on Twitter to censor accounts they claim as disinformation. We get introduced to the State Department's Global Engagement Center, GEC, created in Obama's last year. GEC is an interagency group within the State Department whose initial partners included the FBI, DHS, NSA, CIA, DARPA, Special Operations Command, and others. GEC's mandate is, quote, to recognize, understand, expose, and counter foreign disinformation. As Taibbi puts it, however, as we now know, every program set up to surveil foreigners always ends up being turned on us innocent domestic citizens just like the Patriot Act or the NSA spying apparatus. A former intelligence source described GSC this way, quote, it's an incubator for the domestic disinformation complex. All the shit we pulled in other countries since the Cold War, some morons decided to bring it home, end quote. GEC funded a secret list of subcontractors and helped pioneer an insidious and idiotic new form of blacklisting. An Inspector General report shows GEC was initially obligated $98.7 million, of which roughly $80 million came from the Pentagon. It reportedly gave money to at least 39 different organizations. What I am about to say will be repeated numerous times in this episode in order to drill the point home. The First Amendment reads in part, Congress shall make no law infringing on the freedom of speech. If a group that receives any funding from the U.S. government, either directly or indirectly, i.e. laundered dollars through a bunch of NGOs, who then push for censorship, they are guilty of violating the First Amendment and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent possible. Some of the nonsense claimed by GEC called out in this Twitter file include, as one Twitter executive put it, quote, if you retweet a news source linked to Russia, you become Russia-linked does not exactly resonate as a sound research approach, end quote. Here's another, quote, it equates anything pro-China, but also anything against China in Italy, 
as part of Russia's strategy, end quote. Here's another. GEC's China list includes multiple Western government accounts and at least three CNN employees based abroad. Another internal email read, quote, I believe what they mean is there is a surge in accounts that agreed with Moscow aligned narratives that equals Moscow controlled. Twitter's Aaron Rodericks explained that the GEC report on France, quote, attributes membership in the Yellow Vest movement to being Russia aligned, end quote. He went on to say, quote, GEC has doubled their budget by aggressively overstating threats through unverified accusations that can't be replicated either by external academics or by Twitter. Taibbi then shifts his attention to a couple other shady NGO censoring machines who were doing the same shit that Hamilton 68 was doing, as we covered in the previous Twitter Files podcast, specifically a group called New Knowledge. This is a scandal-plagued company staffed by former NSA officials that the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI, hired to do expert assessments of the initial batches of suspect Facebook and Twitter accounts. Taibbi reports, when Twitter saw new knowledge and its reporter worship disinformation gurus like Jonathan Morgan and Renee DiRosetta were making analytical leaps they felt were impossible, they knew something was off. Just like Hamilton 68, GEC and new knowledge littered the media landscape with flawed or flat-out wrong news stories. Exacerbating matters, Americans in both cases paid taxes to become the subject of these manipulative operations. I mean, come on, folks. Tax dollars are being funneled to organizations who then lobby or bully social media companies to silence taxpayers with opinions they do not agree with. In a crucial in-house Q&A in mid-2017, Yul Roth, the head of Twitter's Trust and Safety Department, was asked if it was possible to detect Russian fingerprints using Twitter's public data. He said, quote, in short, no. What has become clear through all of the Twitter files is these totalitarians who are unable to win the debate in the public square have used the so-called counterterrorism mission of disinformation to turn their sights on domestic targets. What's the conclusion? Well, Twitter executives called bullshit enough along the way to conclude that they knew from the first days of the, quote, foreign interference mania as the media zone was flooded with federally funded bad actors playing up cyber threats for political or financial reasons, including GEC, New Knowledge, and a host of others. I repeat, Congress shall make no law infringing on the freedom of speech. If a group that receives any funding from the U.S. government, either directly or indirectly, i.e. laundered dollars through a bunch of NGOs who then push for censorship, they are guilty of violating the First Amendment and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent possible. In the next file, Matt Taibbi introduces us to the term censorship industrial complex, of course a playoff of Eisenhower's military industrial complex. He starts off by explaining it this way. When Twitter files reporters were given access to Twitter's internal documents last year, we first focused on the company, which at times acted like a power above government. But Twitter was more like a partner to government. With other tech firms, it held a regular industry meeting with FBI and DHS and developed a formal system of receiving thousands of content reports from every corner of government, HHS, Treasury, NSA, even local police. Emails from the FBI and DHS and other organizations 
often came with spreadsheets of hundreds or thousands of account names for review. Often these would be deleted soon thereafter. Many were obvious misinformation, like accounts urging people to vote the day after an election. But other official disinformation reports had shakier reasoning. Twitter analysis often disagreed with the FBI's labeling of accounts as Russian actors. Once FBI disinfo list of 378, quote, Iranian state-linked accounts included a Iraq vet once arrested for blogging about the war, and also included a former Chicago Sun-Times reporter and a website that publishes Noam Chomsky. Turns out the bulk of censorship requests didn't come from government directly. They came from NGOs. Here we go again. Taibbi explains it this way. We came to think of this group, state agencies like DHS, FBI, and the Global Engagement Center, that GEC I mentioned earlier, along with NGOs that aren't academic, and an unexpectedly aggressive partner, commercial news media, as the censorship industrial complex. These NGOs included some familiar names like National Endowment for Democracy, the Atlantic Council's DRF Lab, Hamilton 68's creator, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, and Clemson's Media Forensic Lab. What we saw through the Twitter files was the fusion of Intel officials, researchers, and executives at firms like Twitter effectively becoming one team in the drive to censor unwelcome speech. Taibbi describes the Woodstock of censorship industrial complex as the Aspen Institute, which receives millions of dollars a year from both the State Department and the USAID. It held a star-studded confab in Aspen in August 2021 to release its final report on, quote, information disorder. The report was co-authored by Katie Cork and a guy named Chris Krebs, the founder of the DHS Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Holy shit. C-I-S-A. Yoel Roth of Twitter and Nathaniel Gletcher of Facebook were technical advisors. Prince Harry joined Couric as a commissioner. I mean, come on. If you weren't impressed by the fact that the completely irrelevant Katie Kirk was involved, you certainly have to be impressed with Prince Harry's involvement. What were the taxpayer-backed conclusions of this group? You will likely not be surprised. One, the state should have total access to data to make searching speech easier. Two, speech offenders should be put in a holding area. Three, government should probably restrict disinformation, quote, even if it means losing some freedom. And four, Aspen recommended the power to mandate data disclosure be given to the FTC. How many times do you think the word Constitution or First Amendment or freedom of the press were mentioned during this fiasco of a conference? I would set the over-under at one and take the under. Taibbi goes on to say, The Twitter files show the principles of this incestuous, self-appointed truth squad moving from law enforcement and intelligence to the private sector and back. Well, you say, so what? Why shouldn't civil society organizations and reporters work together to boycott misinformation? Isn't that just an exercise of free speech in and of itself? The difference is these campaigns are taxpayer-funded. I repeat, Congress shall make no law infringing on the freedom of speech. If a group that receives any funding from the U.S. government, either directly or indirectly, i.e. laundered dollars through a bunch of NGOs who then push for censorship, they are guilty of violating the First Amendment and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent possible. The next file was authored again by Matt Taibbi and is titled, 
the great COVID-19 lie machine, Stanford, the Virality Project, and the censorship of true stories. Now, I'm sure most of you are aware of the sweeping levels of censorship of all things COVID over the last three years. In this file, as the title suggests, we find out about the Virality Project, where billions of social media posts were monitored by a coalition comprised of Stanford University, federal agencies, and a slew of often state-funded NGOs. Here we go again. You remember the censorship? Reports of vaccinated individuals contracting COVID-19? Censored. The idea of natural immunity or herd immunity? Censored. Suggesting COVID-19 leaked from a lab? A conspiracy theory. Ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? Horse medicine. Junk science. Turns out that in 2021, the Virality Project worked with government to launch a pan-industry monitoring plan for COVID-related content. At least six major internet platforms were onboarded to the same ticketing system, sending millions of items for review. The Virality Project reviewed content on a mass scale for Twitter, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Medium, TikTok, and Pinterest. It knowingly targeted true material and legitimate political opinion while often being factually wrong itself. Virality Project was a smashing success for the totalitarians as government, academia, and an oligarchy of would-be corporate competitors organized quickly behind this once-secret, unified effort to control political messaging. On February 5, 2021, just after Joe Biden took office, Stanford wrote to Twitter to discuss their Virality Project. By the 17th, Twitter agreed to join, got on its first weekly report on anti-vax disinformation, which contained numerous true stories. In March of 2021, the effort was looking to expand to alternative platforms like Gab, Parler, Telegram, and Getter, giving them near total surveillance of the social media landscape. Now keep in mind, prior to these efforts in 2001, Twitter's internal guidance on COVID-19 required a story to be demonstrably false or contain an assertion of fact to be actioned. But the Virality Project, and perhaps in partnership with the CDC, pushed different standards. They bent the criteria to subjective concepts like, quote, true stories that could fuel hesitancy, including things like, quote, celebrity deaths after vaccine, or the closure of a central New York school due to reports of post-vaccine illness, or suggesting that the vaccine does not prevent transmission. They dictated to Twitter and other platforms that stories such as these should be considered, quote, standard vaccine misinformation on your platform, end quote. The misinformation identification criteria included calling into question things like the vaccine passport narrative, saying concerns over such programs, quote, have driven a larger anti-vaccination narrative about the loss of rights and freedoms, end quote. Well, that's probably because it did result in the loss of rights and freedoms, jackasses. Vitality Project routinely framed real testimonials about side effects as, drum roll please, misinformation. They warned against people just asking questions, implying it was a tactic, quote, commonly used by spreaders of misinformation, end quote. Can we just pause here for a minute? Digest that for just a second. I mean, heaven forbid you ask questions about an experimental so-called vaccine that is being forced on the world without informed consent. Do not think for yourself. They censored discussions about breakthrough cases, 
Then several months later, there were, you guessed it, breakthrough cases. Twitter essentially adopted the standards of the Vitality Project and started using their language in its policies as it censored thousands of truth tellers and vax skeptics. On April 26, 2022, the project issued a report calling for, quote, rumor control mechanism to address nationally trending narratives and a, quote, misinformation and disinformation center of excellence to be housed within the Department of Homeland Security. Again, Congress shall make no laws infringing on the freedom of speech. If a group that receives any funding from the U.S. government, either directly or indirectly, i.e. launder dollars through a bunch of NGOs who then push for censorship, they are guilty of violating the First Amendment and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent possible. There is no clearer First Amendment violation than what we are discussing here. These people do not operate by any rules. That is who we are up against here. The next, very short, Twitter file deals with Dr. Death Anthony Fauci. It is titled Twitter Files, hashtag Fauci Pharma Files. In a deposition, this piece of shit mass murderer claimed to have never had a Twitter account. Unfortunately for Dr. Death, the White House COVID-19 response Twitter account specifically stated on April 19, 2021, that he, the mass murderer, had been granted control of that account. The fact that Fauci lied under oath is nothing new. He did it repeatedly in congressional testimony over the last four years. What is so telling in this Twitter file is how enamored Twitter executives were with so-called national health experts like Fauci as they worked together to remove censored tweets that contained vaccine misinformation, with the term misinformation being defined by a bunch of unaccountable totalitarians, of course. Quote, Twitter didn't just rely on the voices of prominent physicians like Fauci. Oddly enough, they also work with big pharma companies and pharmacy chains to shape vaccine marketing campaigns. During that same time frame, Twitter had begun working with Johnson & Johnson on a COVID-19 vaccine marketing strategy and with CVS Pharmacy to promote approved narratives. Wait one minute. Twitter worked with Johnson & Johnson? Is that the same company whose COVID vaccine had its emergency use authorization revoked by the FDA just a week or two ago? I mean, maybe, just, just maybe. No, I'm just spitballing here. Maybe if the government and Big Pharma had allowed for proper clinical trials, allowed skeptics to present data, allowed people to think for themselves and not be coerced by government, a government that put pressure on employers who then pressured their employees to get the sometimes deadly, often toxic, experimental so-called vaccine. Maybe if we had been permitted to have adult conversations about the rapidly rolled out COVID so-called vaccine, we could have avoided millions of deaths and adverse effects caused by the vax. Maybe the pushback would have pushed the vaccine into the community that really needed it, the elderly and the people with comorbidities. Why do the powers that be so easily turn into totalitarians and decide for us on our behalf that the American people and people all over the world did not deserve to have informed consent before taking their deadly toxic potion? By the way, if you're interested in a deep dive into Fauci, check out episode 179, The Truth About Anthony Fauci, The Corrupt One-Trick Pony. We've got two more Twitter files to go through in this episode. The next one is authored by Matt Orfala. It's titled, How to Find Russians Anywhere, Project Osprey. One headline reporting on this Twitter file read, We were right. Latest Twitter files release uncovers lies that Russian accounts impacted 2016 election. 
It goes on to report Twitter files release number 21 provides more evidence that the narrative that Russian accounts were a material impacting U.S. elections was a lie. It continues. Before the 2016 election, the Hillary and Obama gang were scared that President Trump might win and then look into their crimes, so they created the lie that candidate Trump was tied to Russians. The fact was that the Obama administration, including Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, had allowed the sale of a significant amount of U.S. uranium, called Uranium One. In return, the Clintons received millions, mostly through their foundation. And to be fair, it's unclear how or if Obama and other members of his administration benefited financially. Any honest observer would see this for what it is, a crime spree committed by the Obama administration. It spied on the Trump administration, gave billions to Iran, opened the southern border, created sanctuary cities, backed corrupt George Soros activities. The Trump-Russia collusion hoax was nothing more than a diversion, a smokescreen to keep attention off of Obama and Hillary's illegalities. You can learn more about that in episode 246, The Truth About the Successful Coup d'Etat. To make their false narrative appear real, those involved in the Russia collusion lie went to Twitter and asked them to identify Russian accounts interfering in the 2016 election. The Obama and Clinton lackeys then used this information to claim Russia interference. In February 2018, the Gateway Pundit determined that the Russian bots that the left claimed had interfered in the 2016 election only garnered 175,000 tweets. But the Alphabet Soup conspiracy media, of course, blacked that bit of news out of their reporting because they only report the story rather than a story. The story is the one that comports with the leftist agenda. And 175,000 tweets ain't enough to move anything in an election, and they knew it. After the 2016 election, the Senate Intel Committee asked Twitter to identify accounts from Russian's Internet Research Agency. But both Twitter and third-party researchers struggled to find Russian agents. Twitter was only able to find 22 at first. Democrat senator and enemy of the people Mark Warner called those numbers, quote, inadequate on every level because, again, he was in search of the story, not the truth. Again, Congress shall make no law infringing on the freedom of speech. Do you think that might include a senator putting direct pressure on a private company to find or manufacturing instances of censorship? Twitter went back to the drawing board in an analysis called Project Osprey. The results were lacking to say the least. They just couldn't find the Russians that the totalitarian Democrats were looking for. For example, based on this new criteria, Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein, her account was labeled as Russian. After Twitter's early attempts to identify Russian accounts resulted in such low numbers, they used different methodologies, tallying ever-increasing numbers of Russians from 22 to 201 to 2700 to 3100, and finally, with Osprey, 3800. MSNBC alone made hundreds of false claims of Russian meddling, citing the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which past Twitter files revealed to be tracking Americans, not Russian bots and trolls, as claimed. Then comes in Clemson's Media Forensics Lab. Outside of Hamilton 68, about which Twitter stayed quiet despite internal knowledge that it was bullshit, Twitter analysts may have had the most disdain for Clemson's Media Forensics Hub, a major driver of print and TV cyber scare stories of Russian subversion. Here is the type of shit Clemson was feeding Twitter. 
In 2020, they suggested that hashtag Bloomberg is racist could be a Russian hashtag because, get this, it started that morning from an account at Dr. Warlord that, quote, lived somewhere in Asia because it posts when Americans should be sleeping. I mean, that's some sharp analysis. Sounds like a sixth grader. Twitter's Aaron Rodericks noted that the Clemson professor who runs this piece of shit hub had a, quote, constant tendency to find Russians and foreign interference every time they looked for anything, end quote. Lists of supposed Russian bots were provided to Congress from this whack job group that were full of American citizen accounts. Wired Magazine wrote that because of Clemson Media Forensics Hub, many Americans have been unjustly censored and suspended from Twitter without warning or explanation. Thrown in a haystack of suspected Russians, quote, they lost access to Twitter accounts that they used to maintain social and career connections, end quote. After years of Red Scare stories, citing the Clemson Group, Hamilton 68, and others, that fueled such awful censorship, the dude in charge of the Clemson Project, a guy named Laville or Linville, he was on PBS in 2022 and said, quote, you know, Russian trolls aren't as common as people think they are, end quote. There are no consequences for these totalitarians because the people in charge of our nation's law enforcement and the leaders at the top of the Democratic Party are totalitarians themselves and loved the censorship of all things Trump and all things COVID. Again, Congress shall make no law infringing on their freedom of speech. If a group that receives any funding from the U.S. government, like a university in South Carolina, who then push for censorship, they are guilty of violating the First Amendment and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent possible. I'm looking forward to an enterprising constitutional law firm to take Clemson to the woodshed for this shit. And in the final Twitter file reported by Aaron Mate, we uncover the FBI's effort to aid Ukrainian intelligence efforts to ban Twitter users and collect their data, including the journalist who wrote this, Aaron Mate. As described by Mate, quote, the FBI's attempts to ban Twitter accounts at the request of Ukrainian intelligence is among the most overt requests for censorship revealed to date in the Twitter files, end quote. In March of 2022, an FBI special agent sent Twitter a list of accounts on behalf of the Security Service of Ukraine, SBU, Ukraine's main intelligence agency. The accounts, the FBI wrote, quote, are suspected by the SBU in spreading fear and disinformation, end quote. In an attached memo, the SBU asked Twitter to remove the accounts and hand over their user data. Of the 163 accounts named by SBU, 34 were suspended and 20 no longer exist. The rest remain active. Those marked for censorship by Ukraine but remain online include prominent, current, and former Russian politicians. The list also includes Russian journalists, a television news host, and an editor-in-chief at Russia's state-controlled network Russia Today. Several Russian government agencies and media outlets were also listed. Can't imagine why the Ukrainians wanted to censor a bunch of prominent Russians, can you? Prominent Ukrainian nationals who fled the country were also targeted by SBU's suppression requests. Hmm, that's weird. So in addition to the U.S. government's proxy war with Russia, sending billions of dollars in equipment and aid to Ukraine, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, instead of doing its supposed job of fighting crime in this country, are running a censorship operation on behalf of our proxy war partner. And we are told over and over again by the powers that be that Russia is the problem. You've got to be kidding me. 
News of the FBI's work with Ukrainian intelligence to censor Twitter users also follows reporting from journalist Lee Fang that the FBI has pressured Facebook to remove accounts and posts deemed by the SBU to be Russian disinformation. According to Fang, a senior Ukrainian official in regular contact with the FBI defined disinformation in such broad terms that it could mean viewpoints that, quote, simply contradict the Ukrainian government's narrative, end quote. If after listening to these three episodes of the Twitter files, you still have any preconceived notions that the FBI is a valent and noble crime-fighting organization, please do yourself a favor and listen to episode 218, The Truth About the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Intimidation. You will quickly be relieved of that notion. There will be more Twitter files coming out in the future. I just listened to an interview with Matt Taibbi on RFK Jr.'s podcast, where he indicated that he has a lot more material to drop. Until then, I want to pound into your head just how out of control the U.S. government is. Not only have our politicians bankrupted the country with irresponsible spending, not only have they ruined the country by leaving the southern border wide open, not only have they torn the populace apart by dividing us along every possible line you can imagine, skin color, wealth, education, stance on abortion, political persuasion, not only has the Biden administration turned the DOJ into its own personal Gestapo to target all things Trump, not only does the same administration vilify, denigrate, and basically call for violence against their political opponents, but they also serve as the chief censor of all things opposed to their current preferred narrative. Please understand the shit I've described in these three episodes about the Twitter files is not isolated to Twitter. It's going on at every other major social media platform. Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and LinkedIn. If you get your news from any of these outlets, you are not getting news. You are getting filtered news. I have longtime Democrat voters in my immediate sphere of influence who, to this day, know nothing about the crimes of Anthony Fauci. They are unaware that RFK Jr. is even running for president against Biden. They have no idea that Biden is guilty of the same crime that Trump is being indicted over for possession of classified documents. They know nothing about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, and they sure as hell have never heard of the reporting of the Twitter files. I'm going to leave you with the same message I left you with in episode 228. The First Amendment in its entirety reads as follows. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in Biden v. Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, quote, A private entity is not ordinarily constrained by the First Amendment. It is if the government coerces or induces it to take action the government itself would not be permitted to do, such as censor expression of a lawful viewpoint, end quote. That's pretty damn clear, wouldn't you say? It has been evident for many years that federal agencies such as the FBI view the First Amendment of our Constitution as an annoyance and an impediment. The only question left to answer is what is the punishment for violating the First Amendment and who is going to suffer the consequences? Ron Paul summed this whole ridiculous situation up like this, quote, So now we have proof that the FBI, along with U.S. intelligence agencies and the Department of Homeland Security, have been acting through private social media companies to manipulate what Americans are allowed to say when they communicate with each other. Is there anything more un-American than that? Personally, I find it sickening. End quote.
And that's the truth about the Twitter files, the third tranche. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share episodes with your friends.